Okay, um, really brief recap, James 1 through 3. Uh, in James 1, the two big takeaways I suggested was, all right, we got a little one with us today. That's just too precious. Um, so uh, two big takeaways. First one is um, James seems to be inviting us to see the world more from God's perspective, not in an omnipotent, omniscient way, but uh, holding his value system, the way he looks at us, the way he looks at uh, what matters. To make that wisdom our own. Uh, that James is, and part of that is calling us to a long-term perspective. Uh, that we don't just think in the now, but we also think, um, you know, what does this mean 10, 20, 30 years? If you're seeing my uh, Stormtrooper Band-Aid, <laughs> when you have three kids, you only have, uh, I had to, had to choose between Disney Princess, Stormtroopers, and uh, Mickey Mouse. So, um, yeah, I chose wisely. Thank you. Yeah, they choose the dark side. So, uh, don't let that distract you. Apparently being a professor means that if I try to shovel snow, I get a blister on my hands. So uh, yeah, I know it's just a shameful, soft-handed job that, uh, that I'm reminded of. Um, but I'm less emasculated with a child's Band-Aid. Um, okay, and, and then James 1 ends with uh, pure and faultless religion is this, to look after the orphans and the widows and their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Uh, that's how he opens up and then he kind of unpacks it as we go. James 2, he uh, says we can't have partiality, and it seems like he's saying, especially in the church, if we are family, if uh, we are brothers and sisters in Christ, if we understand the grace of Jesus, then there is no room for partiality. When we look at uh, each other the way that God looks at us, we can't do this judgmental thing. Uh, and then he follows this up with uh, basically faith without works is dead. True faith for James is living faith. Um, and since that follows on not showing partiality to the rich and against the poor, uh, he seems maybe to have in mind here particularly faith without deeds that care for the marginalized and the vulnerable uh, is um, not a very alive faith. James 3, we looked at the power of speech, uh, both for good and for bad. And then he ends, and I'll read this uh, starting um, in verse 15 with a comparison between true wisdom and, uh, well, what is not true wisdom. So James 3:15, such wisdom does not come from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, devilish. And maybe we'll see a little bit of him unpacking what that looks like in chapter 4. For where there is envy and selfish ambition, there will also be disorder and wickedness of every kind. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without a trace of partiality or hypocrisy. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace for those or by those who make peace. All right, with that uh, sense of wisdom in mind, we'll move into chapter 4. Those conflicts and disputes among you, where do they come from? Do they not come from your cravings that are at war within you? You want something and you don't have it, so you commit murder. You covet something, you can't obtain it, so you engage in disputes and conflict. You don't have because you don't ask. Uh, so James, uh, following up pure wisdom that's peaceable um, in contrast with the maybe earthly, unspiritual, or as he says, demonic kind of wisdom, talks about how uh, some of the issues that we're facing, the disputes or the conflicts, um, often it arises from our own junk. Uh, it's kind of a heart issue. Uh, so I think he's trying to keep people maybe from, from, the, uh, from making too many excuses. If you remember back in chapter 1, when you're tempted, don't blame it on God, but recognize some of this stuff comes from inside you. When you're noticing conflict, 
unhealthy conflict, I should say, and disputes and jealousy and wanting and cravings. Don't just blame it on outside stuff. Recognize that some of this is your own issue as well. You're not always a victim in this. Uh, certainly there is, as he'll talk about, uh, some spiritual warfare going on, but that's not all that, it, all that it is. You've got your own stuff to deal with as well. Um, and then he follows this up at the end of verse 2. Uh, you don't have because you do not ask. So there's, um, just as we learned earlier, if you need wisdom, you ask God. If you're not asking, you're not getting. But it's not only a matter of not asking, because verse 3 You ask and you don't receive because you ask wrongly in order to spend what you get on your own pleasures. So this is the uh, kind of um, vending machine version of God where you, you know, go to God and you put your prayer in and you expect to get something in return. And uh, so much of chapter four is he's pushing against a kind of boastfulness or a pretentiousness uh, as though you could just go to God and and kind of make him do your will uh, where he's going to say, no, this is about... God's will being done, and a, and a posture of submission, um, which is not the kind of posture uh, when you go to God and you kind of make your demands. Um, so this is the best commentary I've read on James right now. Craig Blomberg and Miriam Camel, or Camel, I don't know how you say that. Um, so here's <clears throat> uh, how they say this might get done, as we might confuse our own motives. Um, It's hard to admit sometimes that our seemingly noble requests for good health uh, maybe aren't always so noble. Sometimes these requests for good health, where we believe our motives are so we can serve Christ better, or to have good finances so we can care for our families properly or give more away, or a good job so we can exercise our spiritual gifts best there, can easily wind up being motivated by the even more fundamental, yet ultimately selfish desires to feel good, to be able to buy whatever we want, and to gain a good reputation with others. So this is kind of keeping us humble, checking our motives. God, I want this so I can help somebody else out, or, but in reality, it's, I want this primarily for me, and then you take care of me, and then I'll take care of of others. And so they're um, maybe helping us recognize our own hearts. James gets uh, even more um, harsh here, you might say. Uh, In verse 4, adulterers, I think the Greek is actually adulteresses, um, not because females are worse off here, but he seems to be picking up on the image of um, us being the bride of Christ. Uh, And so, and this is also picking up on the the Jewish uh, idea, that covenant with Israel as uh, God's wife, his bride. So you might um, call to mind, where's my Bible? Uh, Hosea, when the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, you know, Hosea, this is just the craziest story. Go marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her, for like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. Ideal relationship between God and his people is like a a marriage covenant. It's this beautiful thing of um, intimacy and closeness and care and concern. Uh, But what Israel often does is they go after other things. They give their hearts... Uh, to things that aren't God. And so in Hosea, Hosea says, you're going to be an example of what Israel is like to me. Go marry a promiscuous woman. He does. She leaves him. And then God says, after she leaves him, go show your love to your wife again. Though she is loved by another and is an adulteress, love her as the Lord loves the Israelites. 
though they turned to other gods, and then this random line, they love the sacred raisin cakes. <laughs> got I wish I knew what that, I guess it's some sort of uh, idolatrous practice or something related to a cult. Uh, most of us probably aren't tempted by those. Um, but, but it represents, um, you know, an ancient Near Eastern version of that which calls our heart and our allegiance away from God. And if we view that relationship with God uh, with the kind of closeness of a marriage covenant, uh, then we can also then view when we turn away from God as a form of adultery. And then it sounds a little bit, um, I don't know, it raises the stakes, I guess you would, uh, in that relationship. But it also uh, reminds us of how good it can be. We could be in something or a great metaphor for our relationship with God is like a marriage metaphor. Can you imagine God thinking that he wants to be that close with us? What a beautiful thing if we take it seriously. Adulterers, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Here's where it's helpful to read things in context, uh, maybe the ancient context as well. This isn't you hate the world or you can't be friends with those in the world. It's, it's not that at all. We have Jesus as our example. He very much uh, you know, ate uh, and drank with those who would be considered in the world. He loved the world so much that you know, God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Uh, but here the language of being a friend of the world uh, is implying, as you get here with adultery, um, adopting the value system of the world. Uh, so that Paul is, or excuse me, James is contrasting the wisdom from above or from below, um, or what seems to be here, uh, giving yourself to the world or giving yourself to God. So the issue is not do you like the world or like those in the world, but um, are you adopting their value system? So here's how Blomberg and Kamel say it. Friendship in antiquity was usually taken far more seriously than in today's Western world as a lifelong pact between people with shared values and loyalties. So James keeps talking about things like double-minded or double-tongued, where we have divided loyalties. Uh, And so this language of being friends with the world is is having our loyalty being along the world's value system. That's the problem. Uh, Not caring for or loving the world, but adopting the values and giving it our loyalty. The expression friend of the world explains the metaphorical adultery. The audience has the wrong object for a lover. The fallen world system and the values of the unregenerate. Um, So with that language then of adultery, following up where James seems to um, expect people to know the Shema, hear Israel, the Lord our God is one, Uh, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, Uh, we might then, with this friendship language and adultery language, then consider uh, what would it mean then to think about having an affair of the heart, or the soul, or the mind, or strength. Are we giving our hearts to something uh, that God says don't give your hearts to? What is our sacred raisin cake? Right? Are we, are we, yes, you gotta love that. Um, are we giving our strength to that which ultimately we don't need to give our strength to? Uh, I think this is where James is going. You can't, you can't have this divided loyalty where you want to hold the world's value system and God's. You can't love what the world loves and what God loves simultaneously. Um, we try, I think, but we don't do it well. It kind of reminds me of the uh, parable of the soils and the, like, 
Oh, yeah, the thorns choke it out. Yeah. We're getting hot in here. Starts talking about adultery and divided loyalties, and it gets hot in here. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, verse 5, maybe one of the hardest verses to know uh, how to translate it. Do you suppose it is for nothing that the scripture said, God yearns jealously for the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives all the more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Um, first of all, first difficulty in this is we don't know which scripture he's referring to. God yearns jealously for the spirit he makes to dwell in us. Um, or if he's, anyway, without getting too complicated, this can either read um, or it can either mean something like God jealously desires our hearts. And we give our hearts away to other things. Uh, so he follows it up, but he gives all the more grace. Even as we are struggling with this, by his grace, he calls us back. Think of the grace that Hosea shows his promiscuous wife. That's the kind of grace God gives us. Uh, he desires us, and he gives us grace to desire him. Um, the other way to translate this, <laughs> um, the other way to translate this is uh, that there is... Um, kind of something in us, like going back to verse 1, those cravings that are at war within us, uh, that yearns for things that shouldn't, and we need help, and God gives grace. Um, it's not clear. The context can go either way. The Greek can go either way. Uh, whatever it is, we need God's grace to get um, aligned uh, in our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We need the grace of God. We don't have because we don't ask. What do we need to ask for? We need to ask for grace. We need to ask for the wisdom from above because this stuff is not easy because the world is constantly um, and subtly and often unconsciously um, drawing us into its value system. It's, it's subtly um, uh, gaining our loyalty. Uh, and so we need grace. We need wisdom to realize when that's happening because sometimes it's unclear to us. Verse 7 uh, maybe this is, this is the way that we begin to do that. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So maybe step one, submit to God. Be subject to God. Uh, and then we're going to talk about what this looks like. But if, if what we need is humility, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble, one of the most humble things you can do is recognize you're not God and you're not in control, and you submit to God. That's hard. That is very hard. I don't know. What did Josh do in the Lord's Prayer today? What was the... I go to second service. Anyone know the phrase? Your kingdom come. Yeah, so that language, um, this is one of those kind of ways we daily submit, and we'll come back to this. Um, I've prayed the Lord's Prayer for a long time. Um, I do a lot of other stuff not well, but this is one of those prayers that's uh, Dallas Willard in his book, uh, Divine Conspiracy. I was introduced to that, and it just stuck with me, praying the Lord's Prayer daily um, as kind of my skeleton prayer. And when I'm doing this well, and starting out in the morning, and I pray, uh, your kingdom come, your will be done, there's a kind of submission that is uncomfortable, uh, but it is kind of a necessary beginning to the day. It's not my kingdom. It's not my will. Sometimes I want to go really fast past that because I want to get to my daily bread that I need uh, and define it how I want to. But, man, slowing down every day and saying, your name be made holy, your will be done in my life. That is hard to do. Um, but, but this is that kind of intro, submit yourselves to God. This isn't a one-time thing. This is a daily recurring thing as we uh, grow um, continuously in our submission to God. 
resist the devil and he will flee from you. Obviously, he comes back, uh, but, but we do have our role to play. James does this interesting thing um, where we need grace. We need wisdom from above, right? We can't do this on our own, but he also doesn't assume that this is all God's problem. You submit. You resist. Uh, there's a, there's a, a partnership in this life. Uh, God's not going to overpower us, but he is going to empower us. Uh, because that's what we need. We need him, and he wants us to grow up. Um, so I don't know if I've used this analogy before, but teaching my uh, daughter to ride a bike, right? I'm going to hold her for a little bit because she needs me to hold her, but eventually she needs to grow up and I need to let go, right? If she's a teenager and I'm still holding the bike, then I haven't let her mature. And sometimes God, uh, he empowers us, and sometimes he, he steps back so that we grow and we mature because he doesn't always want us to be uh, infants in our faith. Uh, verse, verse 8, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Oh, what, a, what a wonderful thing. Um, this was what Moses and the priests could do. They could draw near to God. Uh, we, because of Jesus, can draw even nearer to God. Just let that sink in. I mean, this is so much of what Hebrews was about if you were in the Hebrews class. What a gift that we can draw near to God. And what another great gift that he draws near to us. If we're following that kind of marriage metaphor, there is an adulterous move drawing away from, but he calls us back, he gives us grace, and he doesn't just have us go to him, but he draws to us. It's like the prodigal son. The father sees him from afar, and he runs to meet him. This is our God, or our father, or our spouse, to just mix the metaphors here. Uh, but there is an intimate, tight, loving relationship uh, that um, is possible. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify you, your hearts, you double-minded. Uh, if the language of drawing near to God uh, might, might imply some sort of um, kind of cult-like, cultic practice, like uh, in Le- Leviticus, this is what the priests do. They, they draw near. They offer sacrifices. Well, part of them being able to draw near, they have to purify their hands and their clothes and prepare for sacrifice. So maybe he's holding on to that metaphor. Purify your hearts. Clean your hands. Uh, your hands kind of being a symbol for your action. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Um, I didn't catch this my first time through, and then I think it was my third commentary I was reading that finally pointed this out. Clean... Excuse me, uh, cleanse or purify your hearts, you double-minded. You expect it to be purify your minds, you double-minded, but purify your hearts because of your double-mindedness. It's kind of like, again, trouble with our minds sometimes is a heart issue. Uh, it's a strange uh, but maybe accurate, accurate idea there. Once again, it's a two-way thing. God gives grace, but what do we do? We cleanse our hands and purify our hearts. We work alongside him. Verse 9, lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into dejection. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. When we lift things out of context, uh, when we don't read um, within a larger scripture, you can read this to be like, oh, I guess Christians should always be sad and never have joy. That would be a very poor reading of this. Um, I think verse 10 is, is summing up what he's getting at. This is a way of humbling oneself. When we need grace, when we need wisdom, when we need to submit, when we need humility, sometimes 
It is an open and honest brokenness before God. And there is absolutely a place for that. Where we say, God, I need you. I have screwed up again. Or we do this communally. God, we as a congregation uh, are broken and we need your love and your guidance and your grace. Maybe no one captures this as well as, uh, as uh, David, at least what's traditionally um, attributed to David in Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God. If you've never prayed this, you've got to pray this sometimes. You'll, you might find this at a time when you feel especially broken and you need words to say. Turn to Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. You are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. And that is a powerful prayer. And part of where that, the powerfulness comes from in that is not only the humility, but the humility in, in, uh, coupled with a recognition of God's holiness. You don't get there if God's a pushover God. If you don't recognize God as good and holy, it's, eh, you know, oh well, I messed up. This is, you are a good and holy God and I am a sinner, but I know your grace and your mercy, and so I approach you and ask you for clean hands and a pure heart. Man, what a beautiful uh, psalm there. So, you see that, verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. This is what lamenting and letting your laughter be turned into mourning, I think this is what it's about. It's not a, it's not a forever disposition, but there is uh, there are times where we need this disposition before God. Verse 11, as he seems to be following, um, if you're wondering how things fit together here, uh, chapter 4 seems to be dealing with uh, calling people to humility in a way from a kind of pretentiousness. Um, so he's just called them to be humble, uh, to recognize maybe some of their inner brokenness uh, that is leading to conflicts um, uh, among them. Here it seems to be the kind of boastfulness or the pretentiousness that leads them to judge one of their brothers or sisters. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers and sisters. Whoever speaks evil against or judges another speaks evil against the law and judges the law. It's a long verse, so I'll stop there. The, um, the idea, I think, going on here is something to do with slandering someone. This is not, you can't ever say, this is sin. Clearly, James is talking about there are some things you're not supposed to do, and some of you are guilty of it, so get it together. Uh, 
So this is not, you can never speak about sin or in a loving relationship in a congregation say, you shouldn't be doing this or this is unhealthy. But this seems to be a kind of, um, I'm better than you, I can stand in condemnation, it's lacking humility, um, it's a way of pushing you down to lift oneself up. Uh, in this commentary, um, here's how um, they have seen this at work, uh, particularly in churches. The problem in most Christian contexts, however, is not dealing with the extreme clear-cut cases of uh, slander, uh, where it's really obvious that someone is, is speaking ill um, and, and condemnatory about someone else, uh, but it's often in the grayer areas. So one author says, here are three ways that sometimes we in our nice Christian circles do this, whether we're aware of it, aware of it or not. Judging the motives behind others' words or actions, that's hard. Judging someone's motives. Who are you to judge someone's motives is something about like we're going to hear. Judging someone's motives, judging how someone spends their money, and judging how someone rears their children. Interesting three that this person points out. Um, we have ways of, of looking down on others that are just uh, completely unnecessary. And not only unnecessary, but if we're going back to the heart, they reveal a heart uh, that is dealing with pride, which is often coupled with insecurity. Uh, and so let's keep going. Um, whoever speaks against another or judges another speaks evil against the law and judges the law. Um, the logic seems to be that when you judge somebody else, when you slander, uh, the law says, this is like Leviticus 19.16, don't slander. When you decide you're going to slander even though the law says it, you've become a judge of the law. This law, as I'm looking at it, I don't need to keep. I judge this law is unworthy. I will go forward in my slandering. That's, I think, what he's saying there. When you do this, you are judging the law. You are judging which laws you need to keep, which laws matter, and which laws don't. And that is um, not a humble position. But if you are a judge, uh, of the law, you are not a doer of the law, or but if you judge the law, you aren't a doer of the law, but a judge. And if you want to be the judge, you've got some competition. Verse 12, there is one lawgiver and one judge who is able to save and to destroy. So who then are you to judge your neighbor? Right? There's one who can do it. He's got the power to save and destroy. Tell me about your powers, you who want to judge the law and judge others. Can you save or destroy? No? Okay. Well, why don't you stop judging? Uh, seems to be James's um, attitude. He kind of pounds it on them. Um, so, uh, leave that up to God. Uh, don't get in this position where you're judging others' motives, where you're condemning someone else. Uh, that's not the way it's done. If you know the Matthew's kind of version of doing this properly, you go speak to someone in private. If you're, if you're worried about some action that they're having that's, um, that's hurting them or hurting others, if that doesn't work, then you go with the elders. There's a, there's a place to, to talk about sin and a proper way to do it with humility. And there is the slanderous and condemnatory and um, kind of trying to elevate oneself way that is, um, is boastful and sinful. Uh, so do this well, do this wisely. And kind of flowing throughout this is, is the whole command, love your neighbor as yourself. How would you want someone to approach you if they thought you had an issue like this? Would you want them to gossip about it with someone else? Would you want them to judge your motives? Or would you want them to come and talk to you with a spirit of humility? Uh, really, you get love your neighbor as yourself down pretty well. A lot of these things are just uh, natural um, kind of um, consequences of doing that. Say a hand. 
Uh, I, I often will tell people something similar to what you were saying. There's three wrong kinds of judging, judging someone's motives, particularly negatively, judging someone's value, or saying if I was in their shoes, I would not do what they're doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, so it's... Otherwise, like to say, to acknowledge something as sin, we're, we're called to do that within the church. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it brings us back a little bit to showing partiality. We can't judge someone's worth, we can't judge someone's motives, Leave some of that up to God. Verse 13, anything else before we got? We're doing good on time for once. Yeah. yeah. I, I think I'm, I'm looking at the part of it that says uh, there's only one lawgiver and judge. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we have a tendency sometimes to put ourselves above God. I mean, I mean, hear people say things like, well, that, that, that part of Christianity, or mm -hmm. um, my Jesus would never, or, I mean, it's... it's um, and I think that flows down into judging other people, but I sometimes think it's bigger. It's, yeah. It's back to the garden where Satan said, surely God didn't say that. Surely not. Um, yeah. And it makes us the ultimate decider of right and wrong and truth. And yeah. So. Yeah, which is, is following directly from verse 7, submit yourself to God. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a kind of humility that uh, is required for this. so far the other direction now that a lot of times there's so much of an emphasis on tolerance that there's no sanctification, there's no holiness. Mm -hmm. And so I'm curious, you know, based off of when we read something like this, I hear one saying, well, we can't judge what anybody's doing. That's a reaction to one pendulum swing. I also hear this passage saying, you can't judge whether or not you follow this piece of the law because who are you to decide not mm -hmm. to do something that God asks you to do? So I'm just curious for your reaction to that because how in a culture of, of uber tolerance. Oh yeah, that's like our chief virtue in America, yeah. How do we react to something like this? Short answer, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is, I'm just giving you the theory here. Um, the, to, to work this out practically is hard. I mean, to work this out practically requires um, that we, you know, there's some, some fundamental groundwork that doesn't always apply to uh, contemporary churches, like the church is supposed to be seen as a family and have that kind of close dynamic. Um, but if you don't have that, and I think we've got some of that Otter Creek, it's hard at a big church, but being in small groups and that kind of stuff helps. But without that family commitment, it makes it that much harder to hold someone accountable, um, when, we're, when we treat church as a collection of individuals, it makes it a lot harder to say can and can't and this is right and this is wrong because then you just go to someone who tells you what you want to hear. I don't know, this is Josh, practically, yeah. This is maybe a cliche answer, but I think the answer is both. Yeah? I, I, don't, I don't think it's either or. I think, I think we as individuals, we as a church, need to embrace both passionately. Yeah, and so what... So what does that look like? I'm not disagreeing, just how do you see that working itself out practically? Um, it's hard to reduce it to 
25 words. <laughs> it is, yeah. But um, where um, there is wrongdoing um, within the guidelines the scripture gives us, it needs to be confronted mm -hmm. with love. And when there's a time for grace, it needs to be given fully and faithfully. Yeah. So the church needs to find that that's sweet spot between um, so much grace that they don't ever speak honestly and so much, um, I don't know, uh, honesty or judgment that they forget to show grace. Almost like speaking the truth in love. Yeah, yeah, certainly. But uh, it's hard, easier said than done, right? Um, but because it's hard, we shouldn't make an effort. Oh, I, I'm 100% with you on this, yeah. Um, yeah. This is really, I'm really struggling with this. I think when Terry, Terry said the word tendency, I think the whole fact that we're human really jacks this whole thing up, right? So we have, we automatically judge. We automatically, our tendencies are, are we grow up Catholic, we know it's original sin. It's the whole, it's the whole, that's our tendency. Yeah. who we are as human beings. So we're already behind that. I think of an analogy. We're the third string trying to make it to the first string, and we're really never going to get there. It's mm -hmm. really just is really messing me up. And so, and, and when we talked about judging and tolerance and all that, the only thing that's changed since this thing has been written has been culture. The cultural influence of everything we're talking about is 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 messing us up. And we want to go cult. We we t we tend to go to culture and get off of our beliefs. Mm -hmm. and, and and that's that's our problem. It's pretty clear. There, you said there's not a, a cut dried answer, but the culture we lean too much on. So we reel back into what our core beliefs are and what we've been talking about doing things in love helps us to get to that point. But it's the cultural piece in my mind. Nothing's changed there. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, but our human failings, we gotta just call it what it is. Someone walks in the door, we're looking at the hairdo. I mean, it's just, it's not judging right or wrong, but it's just we, uh, we're aware of things like that. And this is just, it's really hard to get there. There's a, there's a huge gap that I don't know we'll ever, yeah. we'll never get there. And that's what I, I like to get there, but I just don't <laughs> yes. to do it. But the cultural piece is something I just think we need to be more aware of and talk about and call it what it is. Yeah. That's how, that's how the church is leaning. Yeah. And, you know, talking about we're here and we're getting there. Um, we don't go from here to there or even progress by just talking about it. I mean, this, th we don't trip into this. This takes a lot of intentional practice and effort and prayer and discipline, um, which is like, well, add something else to our to-do list, you know? Um, it's hard, yeah, and it's costly. Um, and it requires sacrifice um, to take it seriously. Yeah, so I'm, I'm not giving any answers, yeah. A book played a role in our raising our children uh, was focused on uh, their discipline. Mm -hmm. And it talks about when you have a child that's behaving in a way that's contrary to your family's beliefs or to what you believe, you have a right to condemn that behavior, but you never condemn the child. You mm -hmm. don't condemn them perhaps they have, maybe they had pure motives when they did something wrong. Mm -hmm. uh, so that you can say, I don't agree with this behavior and because he's violating the, the mores of our family, we have to engage in a period of discipline. Mm -hmm. uh, so, but you don't, you still love the child and you're going to work with that child. And I think that's God's picture, as you pointed out, with the mm -hmm. father, son, yeah. father, 
ready to leap into action, <coughs> meaning at what? Uh, that's that's tender balance, as, as Fred talked about in church. You're not out to, to send somebody to hell. You're trying to save them, as the chapter says, I think, coming up. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you can bring somebody back. Yeah, chapter 5. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a beautiful picture. One of the things that I found uh, kind of a practical helpfulness and, and humility is C.S. Lewis's, um, uh, one of his kind of ideas about how God judges and that's uh, he judges us kind of based on where we are and what we've done from where we are. Um, and so, for instance, I've been raised in a good and loving family in a Christian home. I've had so many things going for me. So for me to live as a Christian might mean that I have, you know, done this. Uh, whereas someone else who has, you know, all that stuff going against them, for them to make progress that would seem like regression for me might be... A huge leap and so if we're just judging on the outside you know look where I am and look where this person is you know I can feel good about myself but what we don't have is a God's eye perspective and God if he's judging what you've done with what you've been given he's the one who's able to say no place for your pride because all you've done is taken a little baby step and this person you don't know where they've come from but they have taken leaps you know uh, and so you kind of Mm-hmm. <coughs> you know, um, crying and yeah. washing his favorite hair. That's exactly yeah. What yeah, her many sins have been forgiven, so she loves much. Um, all right, last few verses here uh, in chapter 4. Come now, you say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a town and spend a year there doing business and making money, yet you don't even know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Uh, this is, is the same kind of language we got. Uh, the rich is like a flower in the field. Uh, flower, you know, withers and fades or whatever uh, the exact language is. Um, again, following up this sense of pretentiousness, it's this uh, idea that I'm in complete control of my life. I'm going to make these plans. I'm going to do what I want. I'm going to make my money. I'm going to do my business. Uh, and it's, you need some humility and recognize that God is the one ultimately in control. So verse 15, instead you ought to say, if the Lord wills or if the Lord wishes, we will live and do this or that. I don't believe this is a new legalism where every time you use the future tense, you have to follow it up with, if the Lord wills. Um, that doesn't seem to be what's going on here. It's, it's bringing us back to that place of humility. And this seems especially clear in the next verse where you get boasting and arrogance and boasting mentioned again. As it is, you boast in your arrogance and all such boasting is evil. So the... Um, what they're saying is there's a particular attitude here about me and to use the, um, the Lord's Prayer, kind of me and my kingdom and my rule and I'm going to do what I feel like. And what this is calling us to is that humility. If the Lord wills, your will be done. There's not a negative here, I don't think, about making future plans, uh, but there is this kind of expectation that you make future plans, one, maybe consulting God, having a little prayer, uh, but two, with a willingness to let God interrupt those plans if he wills, because we're approaching this with humility, with, uh, going back to verse 7, with submission. Anyone then who knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, commits sin. Verse 17 seems to function as a hinge. Uh, What's the thing that we know to do and fail to do? Well, previous to this, it's um, living with a sense of humility, uh, submitting ourselves to God. Uh, here's what we're supposed to do. Faith without works is dead. Don't talk about it. Do it. If you know that you're supposed to submit to God, do so. 
And then in chapter 5, uh, we'll see another example of knowing what you should do and not doing it. Uh, let me give one final example, and then we'll be done. It's always nice to read someone else's way of making this practical so I don't feel like no one thinks I'm stepping on their toes. Um, Blomberg can step on toes. So um, here's this person's example of five ways as we think about um, uh, submitting to God's will in business or with finances. So five practices to avoid. One, envisioning retirement as a time merely to enjoy the fruit of our labor. Uh, so that retirement isn't just about me, but whatever stage of life one is in, we are still doing God's will, there, which is good, right? There's still purpose. There's still um, uh, things that you can do for the kingdom. Seeing work as just a way to make the money we need to buy what we want. Uh, our work, uh, the ability to work and make money is a gift from God, and so we recognize that our money is also a gift from God. Viewing material prosperity as a symbol of our independence we make enough and we get enough in savings and, you know, 401ks or whatever, we don't need God. Imagining God as aloof from mundane cares of money matters and making financial decisions without consulting Christ for detailed guidance. This person kind of get, hits home, right? And ways to do the right thing as individuals and as a corporate body, caring for orphans and widows, avoiding discriminatory practices and showing mercy to others, like fair treatment of stakeholders, employees, communities, customers, vendors, even competitors, rather than an exclusive focus on dividends for shareholders. So some practical outworkings of living according to this wisdom from above as we submit to God with humility. All right, chapter five uh, next Sunday. Thank you all for coming. It's really... Uh, it's really nice to look around and think, these people care what I have to say about James. It's, it's seriously like I get a little teared up just thinking about it.